We'll hear argument first this morning in number 95-124, Denver Area Educational Telecommunications Consortium versus FCC, and number 95-227, Alliance for Community Media versus FCC. Mr. Greenberger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, this case presents a question of constitutional analysis of Section 10 of the 1992 Cable Act, which in turn amended provisions of the Federal Cable Act of 1984 that dealt with public and least access channels on cable systems. It is important to note that public and least access channels are not a creation of the Federal Government. As this Court noted in the Turner Broadcasting case just 18 months ago, cable companies owe their very existence to municipalities giving them by contract the rights of way in their community to lay and string their cable. That's encompassed in a franchising agreement. As part of that franchising agreement, that contract between the municipal government and the cable company, it had become a practice in the 60s, 70s, and 80s for municipalities, without any inspiration from the federal government or requirement by the federal government, to insist as a condition of allowing entrance of the cable companies and allowing them to speak in the very first instance that they set aside channels for the public. And those channels were supposed to be used and are used on a first-come, first-served, non-discriminatory basis, free of editorial control, and in fact, in the usual case... I ask you on that one point, is it clear that those channels are offered pursuant to this section within the meaning of the statute we're looking at, when the, when the locality imposes those conditions? In other words, does Section 10 apply to these channels? Well, it's a, it's a part of subsection H that precedes Section 10, which was in the statute all along. It says any cable service offered pursuant to this section. Does it, uh, what, have what, you, what you described fit within that language? Yes, it is, it is definitely. I think there's no dispute between the parties that public and least access channels are covered by this. Even thing. if these restrictions you describe are imposed by the locality rather than the federal government? Yes. Okay. Um, as well as insisting upon least uh, public access channels, as we noted in our reply brief, by 1982, over 350 jurisdictions, municipalities, had insisted that least channels be set aside. Those are channels which can be used by people who are interested in doing commercial television and can't get their programming on a regular cable channel. In 1984... So this came, too, at the instance of municipalities? Yes, that's correct. There was a general feeling and a fear on the part of municipalities when they opened their city for the laying and stringing of cable that they were allowing a kind of monopoly, or at least a bottleneck, into their community as with regard to the speech over the cable system, and they wanted to let people unaffiliated with the cable company, that is the public in general, and people who wanted to use least access to come on and be able to use that free of editorial control by the cable operator. In fact, with regard to public access, most non-profit public access corporations are appointed by the municipal government itself. They are the ones who are responsible for it. In 1984, when Congress first got involved in regulating cable, they looked at this process made extensive studies, had findings in the legislation that this was a good thing. They sanctioned, they did not require, but they sanctioned the practice of municipalities having public access channels. And they did require that they be free from editorial control. But that was already a condition in the franchising agreements themselves. You mean when you say they sanctioned it? They said communities may have public access programming. They did not say we require it. They did not say you have to have it. They didn't say how you had to have it. it. Just kind of ratified what They ratified what the cities had already done. Are, are you making this point in order to lead up to your state action argument? Is, 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 is that what you're laying the groundwork? Yes, I am leading up to that point. Because, because it seems to me that uh, there might be state action even if uh, the government had enacted this statute in the very first instance. I agree with you, Justice Kennedy, and I, w- and I will address that point. But the one thing I want to make clear is that in Bank Court of Appeals and the Solicitor General's brief refuses to acknowledge what is clear from the record and nobody disputes 
is the prior history of edit, there being no editorial control by cable companies over public and leased access. The cities didn't want it. They wanted their citizens to be able to get on free of editorial control. Well, but you refer to the NBank court. Only there were four dissenting judges below, and only two of them agreed with the proposition that there was state action. So two of the dissenting judges thought there was no state action either. Right. And the fundamental mistake I think that the nine judges made who didn't agree with us below is they refused to recognize the in-bank said the 1984 Act took away editorial control in the first instance. It was required by the federal government. And all the 1992 Act did was restore editorial control. The only persons who challenged that were the two dissenting judges who dissented across the board. Now, our position is the 1992 Act, which is a floor amendment without hearings, without studies, without reports, without House consideration, and handled in a matter of minutes on Does that the floor. have to do with anything? Yeah. Does that have to do with constitutionality of it? It certainly does. I thought Congress, so long as it passes the words by majority vote, the words can come from nowhere as far as we're concerned. Justice Scalia, when Congress acts against the prohibition of the First Amendment that Congress shall make no law, if it's a content-based discrimination, which we argue this is, there must be a compelling interest and in the least restrictive means. I understand all that. Now, this Court said in Sable, and it, the plurality repeated again in Turner, mm -hmm. that it's not an agency proceeding, but there must be some record somewhere, either in the legislative history or in the bill itself. Congress often makes findings in bills, as they did in the 84 Act, that there is a compelling interest. You, you mean you're saying that the bill itself has to make a finding that there's a compelling interest? What I'm I don't saying, think we've, I don't think we've ever held Mr. That. Chief Justice, I think that this Court has been flexible and said, both in Sable, which is a majority opinion of this Court, and in the plurality in Turner, that Congress can do this any way it wants. But when it treads on the rights of the First Amendment, it has the obligation to let this Court know some way whether there's a compelling interest and whether the least restrictive well, means. It may have to make factual findings, but uh, you can make factual findings in a, in a, a bill that originates on the floor. Your, your suggestion uh, in response to Justice Scalia that there's something wrong with a bill that originates on the floor no. I don't think has any foundation in our cases. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I didn't understand that was the... I agree with you completely that the findings can be on the bill on the floor. And, of course, in this legislation, there were no such findings. Wait, I'm, I'm, the findings have to be in the bill, you say? They, ha they can be anywhere. In, 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 the floor, in the floor debate? In Sable, I know that you had a separate opinion in Sable, uh, Justice Scalia. But in Sable, eight justices of this court said somewhere in the floor debate, in the hearings, in the bill, somewhere, this court has to be told that Congress has a compelling interest. Statute. It doesn't speak through the statement of one senator in floor debate. That's that so silly. Uh, but I don't want to waste your time. If that's the prevailing view, Justice Scalia, then it seems to me that, that, a bill, that a bill that comes to the floor which has so clearly a compelling interest that it is immediately adopted by acclamation, you're telling me that bill is weaker than one which is debated on the floor. The Minority is protected not by acclamation votes, but by an explanation that there's a compelling interest. And this Court has insisted that the Congress, when it acts pursuant to the First Amendment, if it has a content-based statute, which this statute is, that it outline not positive disease, as Justice Kennedy said in the Turner Broadcasting case, they have to show that there's real harm. And they have to show, if it's content-based discrimination, that the least restrictive means are used. In this case, Section 10A and 10C provide the cable operator. The very persons that the municipalities didn't want to get involved in this situation, that they have the discretion to ban, to impose a total ban. Well, how, would, on how would Congress go about, in your view, showing that it was using the least restrictive means? Would a boilerplate recital somewhere that we find this to be the least restrictive means? Would that aid the adjudication of a case? Chief, Mr. Chief Justice, in the Sable case, Justice White said that they could go about it in any way they want to, but no, they have but to go about the record. what? 
Are, are you saying that the Congress has to make a finding that what it's doing is the least restrictive way? It doesn't have to make a finding, but it somehow has to allow this Court, when it makes a review, and it, we've, this Court has frequently said it has independent judgment over what Congress does. Not de novo review in this area, but an independent judgment it has to tell this Court why they're making a law that's abridging freedom of speech. And if it's content-based discrimination, what they have to tell this Court is that, that there's a real harm, a compelling interest, and that the least restrictive means are being used, and Sable so holds. You're, you're telling me that Sable holds that Congress has to find that what it's doing is, quote, the least restrictive means, close quote? I, I, Sable does, and Sable follows many precedents, Mr. Chief Justice. Sable says there must be a record. Well, and, and to, to say there must be a record from which this Court could make that determination is quite different from saying that Congress has to make the determination. No, it's, it, it, the cases make it very clear that it's Congress that's abridging the speech, and Congress must make the record. Well, and this the, Court and, reviews and, the record. Including, in your view, a finding that what we are doing is the least restrictive means. I, I don't, don't recall any case in which I've seen in the 20 years I've been on the bench that I've read a record where Congress has said, we find what we're doing is the least restrictive means. Your Honor, they may not have to say it with those exact words. Well, what, what, then what, what are we coming to? But they have to say, for example, in Sable, which dealt with dial-a-porn, which is, we believe, basically a much more serious and decent problem than we're dealing with here. But in Sable, the Court said there they had an existing means to regulate the problem, credit cards, access codes. And Justice White, speaking for uh, uh, substantial me members of this Court, said that in order to put a total ban in effect, which is what Sable did, you mu Congress must somewhere explain to this Court in a meaningful way why the existing regulation is, is no longer the least restrictive means. The trouble that I'm having with this, uh, and you may come to this later, in which case at some point I just, is it seems I'm having, I find this very difficult, this case, in part because it seems to me that there are First Amendment rights on both sides. It isn't just that there's a First Amendment right as a, of a person who wants to originate a program of a certain kind, and those who want to perhaps see this particular program. There's also a First Amendment right as an editor of a person who provides transmission. If this were the New York Times or ABC uh, or NBC News, etc., would you feel the same way? Wouldn't it be obvious? No, I don't feel the same way, and I will give you the three reasons I believe that the First Amendment rights here of the so-called cable companies are at least accommodated if they exist at all. In the first Do they, how, that's important because it's a question of what framework we think about. As I mentioned originally, and as this Court recognized in Turner, to be able to speak in the first instance, cable companies had to come to municipalities and say, we want to get on your property. We want to lay and string cable. Before they had any rights to speak. And the municipalities universally, and Congress recognized this in 1984, universally said, fine. But you've got to set aside space for us, public, unaffected. It's just like a subdivision. You've got to set aside parks for the public. They said you've got to set aside some of your channels. Now, why? Look, I'm, I, I'm not certain that this is a correct way to view it, uh, but they are people who provide to other people lots of messages. And uh, they have to, of course, use a cable, and NBC has to use a piece of property where they broadcast through the air. The air was controlled by the public. The spectrum was controlled by the public. So is the cable place controlled by the public. I'm not saying it's determinative. I'm simply saying, don't we have an instance, and why not, where there are First Amendment rights versus First Amendment rights, well, not First Amendment the First rights. Amendment Again, rights something else. I'm sorry, yeah. Justice Breyer. The First Amendment rights are being dealt with in a completely different case that's like the must-carry case that this Court handled in Turner. So far, the United States government has taken the position that if the cable operators have any rights with regard to public access and leased access, the discrimination against them is content neutral because there's no content involved. It's first come, first serve. 
and the district court has so held. The United States, when it gets up here, has to tell you that it is arguing these cable operators don't have the rights on leased access. In the Turner case, we had a much harder question. In the Turner case, it was, does NBC have a First Amendment right to be carried? And the Congress said in that case, and made a record, a detailed record, well, the local NBC station does because we want to have local content. Now, most of this court said that was content neutral. Some of this court said it was content specific because it required local, a local, local nature. In this case, all the municipality said was, first come, first serve, we don't care what you say, and cable operator, stay out of their way. So if they have First Amendment rights, if they didn't surrender it upon entering into the cable business by getting this municipality to let them come on the property, those rights have been fully accommodated. The United States is so arguing. Judge Jackson so held in the Daniels case. That case is on appeal in TWE, Time Warner case in the D.C. Circuit. Mr. Mr. Greenberger, do I misunderstand the D.C. Circuit's N-Bank decisions on this point? As I read them, I thought that the conflict lay in the area of the or block question. That is, it seemed to me that every one of those judges accepted that all, if all you had was cable operator you can ban, uh, they all would have found the scheme constitutional. With regard to the least access, the, the cable company either must ban, which is a total ban for adults and children. Uh, but I'm asking you to forget the either. Just all suppose right. they had had A and C and if no B. We think there are three things the in-bank court did not deal with when it decided this decision. Three decisions of this court, the Turner case, the Sable case, and the Skinner case. The Turner but case — But am I right in thinking that there was not a one of them that said if all you had was A and C, it would be unconstitutional? Uh, Judge, Judge Wald and Judge Tatel did agree that A and C were unconstitutional in and of themselves. And Judge Edwards and Judge Rogers said that A and B were unconstitutional because they worked together, must block or — must ban or block. But leave B to the side. Let's talk about A and C. A and C set up content discrimination. Everybody who wants to speak can get onto public access or least access if they pay a fee, except those people who have to identify themselves as speaking quote, indecently, is that is broadly defined in these definitions. So you have people who have a right to get on, most people, but if you self-label yourself indecent, if you self-censor, you can't get on. Mr. Greenberger, how does the 1996 Act affect uh, this situation? It applies some blocking uh, requirement now on uh, non-access channels, right? Um, Under the new law, you can. Well, that goes to our least restrictive means argument. But for non-access channels, what they said is, if you've got indecent stuff and you don't want it in, call up the cable operator and tell them to scramble it. Cable operator, you've got to scramble it. Here they say, for public and least access, what we're going to do is allow against the municipality's wishes. And by the way, there are no municipalities involved in this case saying they're coming apart because of the problems in public and least access. But against the municipality's wishes, they say you can totally ban. For adults, too, if under A, you totally ban least access, adults don't see it at all. In Pacifica, at least, the very definition of indecency said when, when there's a risk that children may be watching. But just explain to me what change the new law makes now it, that it, applies across the board to all kinds of Well, with regard to public and least access specifically, it did not affect these regulations, but did give the cable operator the independent power to ban editorially for obscenity, nudity, or indecency, which would not be affected by this case. With regard to all other channels, uh, on the cable, it gave in sections 504 and 505 a right to the parent or the cable subscriber to call in and ask that the cable be blocked from its home. Now, it's, I will tell you, Justice O'Connor, I don't pretend to be an expert. It's, there's confusion in that statute about whether you can only block things you don't subscribe to or whether you can block things that you subscribe to and become a non-subscriber. But there is a way of dealing with that in the new law. With regard to broadcast channels, they have the V-chip. 
They have the broadcast channels, have a year to come up with a voluntary rating system, and Congress is required that every television set has to be built so that it can pick up uh, the microelectronic wave and block something that's indecent or violent. So when we say here we're talking about the potential of a total ban by cable companies who Congress in findings in 1984 said they don't like public access because it takes away their valuable channel space, and they frankly just don't like these people in jeans and earrings walking around telling big-time cable operators what they're going to put on these channels. Congress made that finding, not in those words to be sure, but they certainly made that clear. And basically, with regard to state action, our view is this Court has made it clear when a law imposes burdens on speech based on content, it is subject not only to First Amendment scrutiny, but to the most exacting scrutiny. This law poses burdens on the public who were allowed by municipalities to come onto the thing if they self-identify themselves as being indecent. Mr. Greenberg, in in judging the burden, may I ask you just to advert to A and C for a moment. Am I correct uh, that, with the exception of what I will generally just call indecency, uh, there is still a federal statutory ban on any editorial control by by the cable operators? Except that this was created an exception to the editorial ban in fact, de facto exception. They could for indecency. And in fact, in the new law, it does make it clear, not that I think it really had to, but it does make it clear that the editors can ban for obscenity, indecency, and now nudity. Okay. So we're, we're faced with a statutory regime in which it's not the case that the statute is blank and suddenly Congress says, by the way, you can censor for indecency. What we've got is a scheme in which Congress has said, you may not censor, you may not exercise any editorial control, but you may exercise it for indecency. That's exactly right. Now, one other thing that's important, the cable operators came to, to the FCC and said, wait a minute, our franchise agreements won't let, us, won't let us do this. Now, these agreements are often 30 years in the making. The, the community said, don't editorialize. And the cable operators said, well, in ANC, you gave us discretion. But if we are bound by the contracts, we can't use our discretion. And the FCC construed the statute and said that Congress intended to preempt not only future franchising agreements, but franchising agreements that were already in existence. And in 1984, Congress was so worried about the expectations and the contracts between the municipalities and the cable companies, they said you can preempt, but you can't preempt existing contracts. That's Section 557 of the Cable Act. All of a sudden, out of the clear blue, all these expectations pushed to the side. Based on a supposed harm, a positive harm, but not a proven harm, and certainly not based on the least restrictive means, we can offer many suggestions of lesser restrictive means. Have the parent call the cable company and block the channel. Mr. Greenberg, isn't our precedent relevant to the issue of harm um, so that really your concentration should be on the means used to check that harm. Uh, Pacifica, um, the ACT cases in the D.C. Circuit, I think it was pretty well accepted that there is harm to children. It's, It's accepted and we don't dispute that and in fact we support it. Our one argument, it isn't proven here, and with regard to least restrictive means, it's not proven that this is the least restrictive means. Well, but your, your argument on least restrictive means, I think, leaves out one ingredient of the government's argument, and the government's argument is, is the argument from inertia. Uh, it may very well be that, that, that I would agree with you on least restrictive means if I made the assumption that the parents were sitting there and making decisions as to whether they really want the kids to see it or whether they don't. What's the response to inertia? That's a very good question, Justice Souter. Congress made findings in 1984 that lockboxes were fine. The FCC, in implementing them, said lockboxes are fine. Congress has made no findings here. They didn't even mention lockboxes, that parents are inert or don't use lockboxes. And in fact, the D.C. Circuit uses not the least restrictive means test, but the most effective means test, because they thought, without any guidance from Congress, that, yes, yeah, some parents may be inert, 
But there's no finding to that effect at all. We're and to whether there have to be findings again. Justice Scalia, to I use the word. Whether there findings or simply evidence from which this Court could make, uh, could make the reasonable conclusion. I stand corrected. That's exactly as the proper way to put it. Substantial evidence from which this Court is, can make it. Is it illegitimate? I agree with you, Justice Scalia. I'm sorry. Is it illegitimate for us to draw our own conclusions about the probability of parental inertia? In the stable case, Justice White made it clear this Court cannot make de novo judgments. The first judgment has to be made by Congress. You can review the judgment, you can review it independently, but this Court is not free to see if something is done on There has to be a finding again. I thought you just said it didn't have to be. Substantial evidence. You keep going back and forth. Substantial evidence. So Congress doesn't have to make the judgment. We can make the judgment. No, 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 that's wrong, Justice Congress does have to make the judgment. Congress has to make, provide substantial evidence in the first instance. You get to review it, decide whether it's satisfactory enough to meet the least restrictive means test. You can't make, I can't make, cable companies can't make the judgment when the first Let me interrupt you now. Supposing Congress, not in a formal finding, but committee reports and lots of testimony, everybody said, well, we're pretty sure that a lot of parents are, are guilty of inertia. They don't pay enough attention to this problem as they should. All that was perfectly clear that that's what Congress thought. Would the outcome of the case be different? The outcome of the case would be much more difficult. It, it might very well be different because then they may, w- might say we have a compelling reason. Parents aren't watching their children. Now we've got to step in, and this is the least restrictive means. You don't think that's something we could take judicial notice of? Your Honor, my reading of the stable case and the Turner plurality make it absolutely clear that Justice White said you can't take judicial notice. Well, well, what, if, what if the question in a high, or whether violent crime is a problem in the United States and there had been no finding by Congress, uh, we could not take judicial notice of that? You could, Your Honor, but here the question is... Yeah, but, well, if, we, if, we can't, if we can take judicial notice of a fact like that, Surely we can take judicial notice of other facts, too, so long as they meet the standard for you judicial can take, notice. I, my question is, can you take judicial notice that public and least access channels throughout the country are purveying indecency, and indecency is coming from those channels? You would need expertise and help on that, I do believe. Well, but the, then your, your position is that in some cases the court it cannot possibly make it, its own fine or take, but in others it can. Your Honor, my view is that... Is, is, is that right? Am I? In others it can when it's so obvious as to be unarguable that there's violence in the United States. In my view, in that situation, Congress would have made that clear. But I, we don't have to find, if, maybe I misunderstood you, we don't have to find that these channels are purveying indecency. What we have to be satisfied about are are facts that would go to the constitutionality of the application of the statute if there is an opportunity to apply it. All we have to to conclude about indecency is that if there is such a thing being purveyed, the statute would work in one way or it would work in another way. I think you do have to look those findings over if you're applying the least restrictive means test. Well, are you, are you claiming that the statute is going to be, I, maybe you are, claiming that the statute is going to be applied on a pretextual basis, uh, not because necessarily there's indecency, but, but this, this is going to be a pretext to keep the people and the genes and the earrings from broadcasting, period? Right. We are... Yeah, I mean, is that the argument here? No, it's not the view. Okay. The, the definition of indecency, which is another argument here, is so broad, it's way beyond the definition used in Pacifica. That does the... Public has to get, decide what the cable company. Well, I grant you that, but that's a, that is too a separate argument. So our yes, it is. So the, a lot is swept into this point. But our basic view is that no matter what happens, a content-based distinction has been made here. All decent speech or whatever Congress thinks is decent automatically has a right to get on. If it's indecent, it has to jump through hoops and is subject to a total ban, not just for children. But for adults, there's no time channeling here. Okay, but you, I, I suppose you, uh, you win uh, accepting your premises if we assume there is one instance of indecency somewhere on some channel across the United States. Again, the stable case made it absolutely clear that you don't have to prove that the world is perfect. What you have to prove is that there's a real problem. And you don't have to prove that the restriction is perfect. There may be people get around it, that it's the least restrictive means. Congress is required to go through that analysis by substantial evidence or whatever. Okay. 
and this Court has to see whether they've done it. May I ask you just a, a different question? I guess it's, it's the one that follows the Chief Justice's question of a moment ago. He spoke of our taking judicial notice of the problem of violent crime. I'm going to make a suggestion which may have no application, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, what if there were on the record study after study after study by supposedly uh, disinterested um, academics to the effect uh, that, A, there's indecency coming over these channels, and, B, America's parents are inert. Let's assume the studies show that 52 percent of American parents suffer from total inertia on the subject. Uh, Congress didn't happen to allude to them in the legislative history. Could we take those studies into consideration? You can take those studies into account, but the fact is that even if that were true, total banning is not the least restrictive means. We know that from Section 10B, which has blocking, and parents can ask to see this stuff. Thank you, Mr. Greenberger. Uh, Mr. Lawrence, or Mr. Wallace, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The whole point of this Court's remand in Turner Broadcasting was based on its holding that cable operators do have First Amendment rights, and further findings were needed to see whether the must-carry provisions at issue in uh, that case were a valid restriction on those First Amendment rights. Indeed, uh, point two of the Court's opinion in Turner Broadcasting starts with the following sentence. There can be no disagreement on an initial premise Cable programmers and cable operators engage in and transmit speech, and they are entitled to the protection of the speech and press provisions of the First Amendment. Uh, So uh, Justice Breyer's question is very much in point here. Um, uh, uh, Access programmers are a special category of cable programmers, first provided for by Congress in the 1984 Act. Uh, Of course, uh, some access programming had originated theretofore. Uh, The least access programming, the commercial access programming, was far less common, and that is the kind that Congress required cable uh, operators to set aside channels to accommodate. the public access programs, the so-called PEG access uh, uh, programming, uh, public, educational, and governmental, was already quite common, and Congress merely authorized franchising authorities to continue to require that at their discretion. But what Congress did do that was new was to make access programmers a special category by uh, providing that the uh, uh, operators, the cable operators, would have no editorial control, no editorial discretion with respect to programming on those channels. Um, They do have uh, that kind of discretion with respect to other cable channels. Do we have any cable operators and programmers here arguing that their First Amendment rights are being protected by this legislation? Uh, Time Warner, in an amicus filing in our support, is an example of that. There are a great many briefs before the court. Of course, it's kind of a a curious arrangement because I guess on a non-access channel of a cable operator, the cable operator can uh, uh, charge a premium for channels that have indecent material on them, and many do, don't they? The, they charge more. They earn more correct. money. That is correct. But, uh, so there would be a real incentive for them, then, to think that this is a dandy scheme because they can keep it off the non-access channels and make more money by uh, selling their own. The least access channels are ones in which the cable operators also collect a fee 
uh, from the users of, and that fee can uh, be adjusted based on uh, how many viewers are attracted, what kind of commercial rates the uh, programmer may be able to charge, etc. So those channels are blocked, I take it, unless you pay the fee. That, 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 that's, that's, how the, that's how the cable owner makes his profit on it. That, that Locks is, them unless you take the affirmative action of paying a fee, that, asking for them to come into your That home. is correct. And fee disputes can be uh, um, uh, uh, taken to the commission on that. Now, sec- to, to pay the fee, you've got you've to give your name, right? To the, to the cable operator. Right. Is that is, is, and that's correct? If as far as I'm aware. I mean, there's no way to put a penny in a box or something is what I'm no, saying. No, I'm not talking about viewers. I'm talking about the programmers who lease the access. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. It, the, the, the lease is a fee-paying arrangement. Mr. Uh, Wallace, I understand your point about the cable operators up to a point, and it's, it's this. If the statute were simply, you can ban it if you want to, that's your judgment. But the argument, as I take it, on the other side is it isn't free choice for the operator. By putting this or block into it, you're pushing the choice. Government is steering the choice in favor of ban rather than to make available. Precisely so, uh, Justice Ginsburg. And, and, and I, um, what I want try to clarify uh, in leading up to addressing that is what we see as the scope of governmental action involved here that is subject to the restrictions of the First Amendment, that does have to comply with the First Amendment, and what is, uh, in our view, uh, not governmental action. Sections 10A and 10C of the 1992 Act readjust the distribution of editorial discretion between the uh, operators and the programmers with respect to indecent programming. To that extent, an act of Congress uh, uh, does constitute governmental action and and has to be consistent uh, with the First Amendment. But as the Court of Appeals recognized in its analysis of the case, any such adjustment by Congress between these two protected groups is what could be described as a move in a zero-sum game for First Amendment purposes, because any conferral of discretion on one correspondingly diminishes the discretion that the other one would have over programming. There is still the same total amount of programming available to the viewing public. It's just a question of who is exercising the discretion. So we have suggested uh, that if that the uh, uh, adjustment is made, regardless of whether the 1984 Act came first or the 1982 Act came first, if that if that adjustment is made in a reasonable manner that is viewpoint neutral, uh, um, uh, uh, then it should be upheld because uh, Congress is not trying to influence. Uh, what uh, uh, people can hear uh, uh, by dictating views that will be made available. It's leaving uh, it up to actors in the private sector. Why why isn't Congress influencing it? Because if Congress did nothing, uh, there would be complete freedom uh, for for either party uh, to censor or not as he sees fit. By acting, Congress says, you either editorialize uh, or you block. That, that has an effect. Well, it, it is leaving it solely to the option of the operators, whether we're talking about 10A and C now, not the blocking provision of 10B, which, of course, is governmental action. It's required by the statute. Yeah, but you can't, you can't I suppose, assess, certainly your, your, your opponent's position is, that you can't assess the significance of A without without noticing what's going to happen in the default situation provided by B. Well, there there is a tendency to require censorship, editorialization, however you want to characterize it, 
that, that is positive. It is, and and that has to be, isn't it so, Mr. Wallace, because otherwise Congress uh, would have been uh, acting for no purpose at all. Wasn't, wasn't it Congress's purpose uh, to diminish, uh, to restrict, to regulate what's called indecent programming? Uh, and, and your characterization of it seems to indicate that Congress acted for no purpose whatsoever. Uh, well, uh, I, I would have to differ with that, in, in, uh, but it would take a moment to explain it. What, uh, what Congress thought was in the public interest, at least uh, uh, judging by the provisions it enacted, is uh, that uh, because of uh, uh, a consideration this Court recognized in uh, Turner Broadcasting, it's to the advantage of the public to have a multiplicity of sources available to provide programming, and therefore the access programming itself, which has to be from unaffiliated sources that the uh, cable operators required to carry, uh, is something uh, um, that serves the public interest. But Congress was also concerned that an operator, a cable operator, who is providing these services should not be required against its will to become a purveyor of indecent programming over its system. Uh, it is the one with the uh, direct contact with the consuming public and providing the service and selling the service. And so Congress thought that the uh, operator should have that option. And our view is that the First Amendment does not require Congress to sacrifice one of those aspects of the public interest to the other, that it, it can allow this kind of programming to be available on access channels, but at the operator's discretion in order to serve both aspects of what uh, Congress reasonably concluded. So, so is it one, one of the justifications for the bill that is uh, under the under the law is enacted? It is easier for the subscribers, the viewers, to hold people to account for what they say. Whereas without the act, it's not very clear to whom we can object. Is, is that Particularly part? on the access channels, which are typically not uh, channels where any one programmer is on the whole time, but they're uh, made available in blocks of time that people can afford to buy. Was, was this argument made in, in the briefs? Uh, maybe, maybe it was, and I, I just missed this, this idea of accountability, that the act makes it more clear who is accountable for producing and, 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 and broadcasting this stuff? Well, I would have to say the argument is more implicit than explicit when you articulate it that way. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that it, it um, is uh, uh, inherent in our pointing out that Congress had a strong interest uh, in uh, allowing the operators uh, uh, the discretion uh, to decide whether they wanted to uh, transmit programming of that nature while still uh, otherwise requiring that they transmit access programming from unaffiliated sources without exercising editorial control because there are special problems connected with uh, indecency. But it, it, if I'm, I, I've been trying to uh, lay the groundwork then to get to the question that Justice Ginsburg put to me, which is really the argument that was before the Court of Appeals. I mean, what I've said so far is consistent with the Court of Appeals analysis, but the Court of Appeals didn't have to address uh, any First Amendment contention based on just the redistribution of authority itself. Uh, and, and that's why the but part isn't of the, the, the most vulnerable part of your case is the all block option, because the argument is made, I think, loud and clear, that the government isn't being a neutral arbiter. It is making it tough to give the customer the choice because it says if you do, you have to first block and then you have this turn on. 
instead of saying, make it available, if the customer doesn't want it, the customer will tell you. Well, that, that goes to the 10B, uh, segregation and blocking requirement, uh, which uh, um, we have argued um, is not subject to the strictest scrutiny, but can pass muster under a, 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 the strictest scrutiny test uh, because um, uh, uh, of what Justice Souter quite uh, uh, aptly called the inertia problem. In Ginsburg, this but, court... But Mr. Wallace, before we get into that, I, it, isolating it is not what I'm asking you about. Uh, you said the ban choice restores choice to the cable operator. The suggestion is that it doesn't restore choice, that it is forcing a particular choice, that it's pushing in one direction. All so right. do A and B have to come together, they can't be disassociated. Well, that, that, that gets us back to um, uh, the, the state action question in the attack on uh, the conferral of discretion on the operator in 10A and 10C. It's not the question I meant to address, um, Mr. Wallace, because I'm powerfully confused by talking about state action when we're dealing with a statute, and a statute that concerns speech. So that statute is subject to First Amendment controls, and I don't know how the, state well, action got into this. I, 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 uh, I have explained that, that, of course, the readjustment of discretion itself is governmental action that is subject to First Amendment uh, uh, restrictions. But what the argument below was on 10A and 10C is that uh, while uh, on the face of it, the operator would be the one deciding whether or not to carry the indecent programming, uh, uh, you know, that could have been the way the 1984 Act was written in the first place. It isn't the change in the Act that, that is uh, 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 so crucial here to their argument. What, uh, what they are arguing is that that choice is one where other provisions of the statute and the statutory scheme so weigh on the choice, the government's thumb is so heavily on the scales encouraging the operator not to carry it that the private choice has to be attributed to the government and uh, is part of what is implicit in the enactment. I mean, the, the mere fact that uh, uh, Congress has exercised its commerce power and made rules uh, uh, to govern the relations between private parties that preempt any state law to the contrary is not something uh, 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 unique to this statute. It's true of any exercise I, of Congress power. I would Congress like to power. understand what your position is on the pushing the cable operator to make one choice, that is to ban and also putting the uh, subscriber, the customer, in the uncomfortable position of having to list herself as someone who wants to subscribe to indecent programming. Well, that is uh, uh, um, uh, something that is uh, not a disclosure to the government, but uh, something that... Uh, um, would, would the answer be different if it were a disclosure to the government? Well, it would be a closer analogy to Lamont against the Postmaster General. There would be more of a problem of possible stigma. But this is something that the cable operator is, uh, is required to keep confidential. It's just a way of ordering services that are offered. Uh, and those services have been ordered by large numbers of dial-a-porn customers in New York City, for example, as we've pointed out, and as the, se the uh, Second Circuit found in, in, in uh, its uh, 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 dial decision on that, um, dial information services. Um, the, uh, um, the arguments that are made seem to us not to satisfy the test that this court has laid down. 
what, what uh, the starting premise on, uh, on this kind of inquiry about whether uh, uh, private action can be attributed to the government is uh, that you can't just start off saying that uh, um, the government is required to prohibit, is required by the First Amendment to prohibit a private uh, person such as the operator from refusing to carry it, because that would really uh, be an indirect way of saying that private conduct is itself subject to the First Amendment, that the First Amendment requires certain action on the part of the cable operator. So what the court has said is that the, the government can normally be held responsible for a private decision uh, only when it has exercised coercive power or has provided such significant encouragement that the choice must in law be deemed that of the government. Well, that's, precisely, that's precisely the argument here, and there's some indication that when you look at the whole scheme, that's what's happening, that the thumb has been put on, the government's thumb has been put on the scale to, to uh, eliminate well, uh, a certain type of protected speech. And, and it would seem to me that uh, you might be better advised to spend your time defending the scheme rather than to saying that it's not state action, of course. Well, when we, when we, when we look at, what, uh, at the elements of, uh, of uh, what uh, uh, are said to be the government's thumb on the scales, they seem to us not to be substantial enough to meet this court's test. It's true that members of Congress express the hope on the floor that this might be the result, but that did not impose any legal obligation or material inducement to the operators, nor uh, uh, would it necessarily even come to their attention. Well, but aren't there three elements that have got to be weighed here? Number one, you've got a general statutory scheme that says no editorializing, and then the government says, but it's okay in cases of indecency. There's kind of a wink there. Number two, the government says, if you don't exercise editorial control, you've got to find out what is indecent, and you've got to block it out. And number three, the government says, if anybody wants it unblocked, they've got to make an affirmative act to that effect and sort of put their name on file uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with the cable operator. The there, are, there are three sources of burden. How do we weight that? The obligation is on the uh, uh, programmer rather than the operator to notify the programmer, uh, to notify the operator. The programmer has to notify the operator right. when it's going to be broadcasting anything indecent. So mm -hmm. there is no burden placed on the operator. It can rely on certifications from the programmer and any sanctions uh, would fall on the programmer. There's no burden. But the, the, the operator, operator does have the burden of the choice of saying, okay, once I find that this is going to be coming over my cables, uh, either, either, uh, I either have got to say, you can't do it, or I've got to block it. That's, that is, uh, segregate and block it. But uh, for, for large systems that ordinarily scramble programming, uh, this is not a uh, substantial uh, impediment. Uh, they have the technology to do that as they do with their pay-per-view or uh, premium pay channels. Um, for smaller systems in the rulemaking, the Commission uh, said that they can use a uh, a, a lockbox system that is centrally controlled so that there has to be a written request to unlock the box with a code and it's the operator who will do the unlocking. Well, can I just ask one question? I understand generally how it works when the, most of the channel is a, a certain kind of program. But supposing you have a channel that normally is athletics or something very normal, but they occasionally put on a medical program or some unusual program that would fall within the statutory definition. How does it work as a practical matter that the, how do they block that and give the, the people in the audience a, ch a choice of whether to see it or not? 
Well, I, 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 under the statute, I don't think a medical program well, Thomas, has been anything no. ever found indecent in in uh, by the commission. Uh, uh, well, but there are certain kinds of programs that would have a public value that would nevertheless fall within the definition of indecency. Wouldn't wouldn't you agree with that? Uh, it, it because it isn't actually indecency. It, it's, it's got different words in the statute to describe the kind of program. It, it, it depends on live births, for example. What is meant covered. by a, a public value? A live birth might very well not be indecent. The, the examples that we give in footnote 25 at the end of our brief, which I invite the court to look into, are examples of very graphic. Uh, sexual. No, I understand, but I'm asking you about the program that's on the borderline. It might be a movie with certain scenes in it, or it might be, but not one that you just say, obviously this should not be seen by children. They're sort of borderline things, and in, in being cautious, the operator would probably say, pursuant to our policy, we'll treat this as indecent. Having done so, how can, how does it work that the, that that one program, which is different from the normal run of programs on that channel, becomes available to the public or gives the public a choice between either getting it or not getting it? How does it work as a practical matter? Well, it, Are you saying that category doesn't exist? Well, in, in the first place, it's up to the programmer to notify the operator. Right. And he notifies the program that's going that to be shown at 7 to 9 o'clock tomorrow night is arguably indecent. What, what happens after that? Uh, if, if the operator, uh, if the operator is not showing indecent programming, if it has exercised that choice, then that program won't be shown. If, if it's doing the, uh, the segregation right. and blocking, it, it would normally be put into that. I mean, the, the operator is usually not going to be in a position to view the program in advance and to make a judgment about it. When there are disputes, they, uh, there are uh, a number but if of the, remedial if the decision is made to block the particular program, how does the audience get the opportunity to make a choice to have it unblocked? Well, how there, much notice and how, what, so how does it work in the individual case? I really don't understand. Well, uh, uh, a, a, a subscriber uh, can notify the operator in writing that it wants access to the indecent programming uh, and will be given access. How much notice does it get? It shows up in the weekly TV guide or whatever it is. We're going to show a certain movie, and, that, and they want to see it. How do they, what do they have to, everybody has they to They would have had a blanket, uh, a, a notice that on a blanket basis that indecent programming on, on the segregated channels would be made available to that subscriber and they will get it the way they would get HBO if they're paying the fee for HBO and the channel would be available and to that's them. In, in respect that, I have one question in this. Let, let me assume that A and C Suppose, for the sake of argument, I agree with you on that, just for the sake of argument, that, that uh, they're treating, they're giving the channels, the cable operator, the same kind of discretion in respect to this patently offensive material as NBC, ABC, or newspapers normally have. All right? That would take care of A and C. That's your assumption. Now, let's look at B. In respect to B, I take it the status quo is that a person has a lockbox and he can turn off any indecent program that any cable operator sends. But if the cable operator doesn't originate that program but it comes over a leased channel, then the lockbox is irrelevant. It's not a question of consumer choice. Rather, there it's automatically blocked. And to get that, you have to write 30 days in advance. All right, now, I want to know what sense of any sort that makes. I mean, if, in fact, you were just applying, because there are First Amendment interests on both sides, a rational basis test, how could it be rational, or anything a little beyond rational, if you're a little tougher, to say that 62 channels for very indecent material it's, of course, a system where the, where the, where the person at home turns a key to block it. But for the eight channels that are leased, 
in fact, to get that, the person at home has to write and give his name 30 days in advance. Now, now I just don't understand. That was Judge Edwards' point, I think, and I just don't understand the rationality of that. Uh, in the first place, the status quo is not that most consumers have a locked box. It's no, no, that they, they get a locked box if they know of the existence of it and know that there's reason to have one because indecent programming may be coming in, which may, they may not even be aware of. The, you have a locked box? If you ask for it, and most consumers do not have a locked box. Uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the problem uh, that the sponsors of this legislation found was over the access channels, where programming is very unpredictable because you've got different programmers on each hour or half hour. You never know what will be coming over the access channels. And that's where most of the unwanted, uninvited indecency would crop up that uh, 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 there was concern about protecting children from. Uh, you're, you're not going to see it over uh, 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 NBC or, or, or PBS and so on. Mr. Wallace, well, what's an example of an access channel in this region? I don't know of an example in this region. What, uh, uh, well, of course, the PEG channels are things like uh, uh, the, the, the uh, 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 Montgomery County or one of the university channels that do use them for educational programs. And they have been much less of a problem of indecency uh, taking viewers by surprise and suddenly cropping up. Uh, the commercial access channel that's recounted in the record in some detail is channel 35, the, the Time Warner channel in New York City, which has practically nonstop indecent programming on it put on by a variety of programmers who come on a first-come, first-served basis. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. The case is submitted.